This morning, this is the number two installment of a three-week series that we've entitled Enough, Sharing the Things We Own Before They Own Us. Let's make it more personal. Sharing the things you own before they own you. Um, We've looked last week at this uh, idea, this command from Scripture to be content. And this morning, we're going to look at this command from Scripture, the same passage in 1 Timothy 6, to be rich. And next week, we'll close it out with the command to the Corinthian church to be enriched. But I want you this morning to just reflect back. If you were here last Sunday, uh, this will be a recap. But if you're new, we'll initiate you a little bit. But when we talked about be content, we shared some great words similar to the quotations you saw a pre-sermon on the screen. We shared from Paul, telling Paul, the older pastor, telling Timothy, the younger pastor, in a city uh, known as Ephesus, the fourth largest port city in the Roman world. And it was very important there on the Aegean Sea. It was a place of commerce where ships came in and out and shoppers strolled and merchants made money. And Paul tells Timothy, he says, charge those that are rich in this age. And he's got some good things to share with the church there. And he makes this great comment, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And last weekend, I gave you three motivators from this passage, from 1 Timothy 6, that Paul gives to Timothy. The the first motivator is the sobering reality. The sobering reality is that we brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing with us. And then he gives a bold claim. The bold claim goes like this. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. Really, Paul? Really? And then he gives a needed warning because you and I, we need... We need warnings, don't we? We really need preventive warnings before the fact. And Paul says to Timothy, he says in this warning, hey, riches can cause great woe. Wealth can lead to a lot of problems. And he talks about uh, a few of those. He says that people wander from their faith. They're they're pierced with many griefs. They plunge themselves into various uh, levels of ruin and destruction. He says riches can trap us. It can be a snare for us. And then that amazing words written so long ago can be true for so many of us when it comes to our worlds, when it comes to our hearts and our lack of content, when it comes to our wealth, that we're trapped, we're drowning, and we're bleeding. And there is this invitation to be content. Are you content? There are two roads to contentment, two basic paths. The first is a word that's so popular in our culture, in this advertising-saturated a debt-ridden society that we live in. The first is the way of more, if we can put that up. The way of more. I think we're frozen up there. And the second way, it's being grateful. It's learning how to be grateful for what you already have. Now, we know, we looked last week at First Timothy and we flipped over. We went from Ephesus in First Timothy to Philippi in northern Greece, and we considered some of the most beautiful and profound words on contentment ever stated when Paul talked about, I have learned. See that word? I have learned to be content. It's something like mastering a skill or something that you have to learn. You're not necessarily born with it. We live in a society that says more and more now. More and more right now. In fact, some of you may know this. There are lending institutions that are very happy to help you get more and get more now. And they'll say things to you like buy now and pay later. Or 90 days, same as cash. 
Can I tell you how laughable that is? 90 days, same as cash. Can I just say 90 days is not the same as cash? You know that what's the same as cash? Cash is the same as cash, okay? You can come to church to learn this, right? Cash is the same as cash. But our society, this debt-ridden, advertisement-saturated society says more, 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 get more, and you need more. In fact, you're not content, but if you buy this, try this, travel here, get what we need, then you will be Content, you'll reach that level of contentment. Here are the two paths. Which one are you on? For you, is it the more road? Is it, as we talked about last week, is it just getting to what's next? Or is it number two? Is it learning, like we talked about last week, to stand in the yellow circle called here and look up to the heavens and begin to be ennobled with this idea that you can be fully alive to God and fully present with people right where you are without having more. And even in your less than favorable circumstances. In fact, think about for a moment the people who inspire you. Who are the people that inspire you? I bet you there's a thread through every person, through every story. It's someone in a situation that's less than favorable, a tough situation. Someone enduring something, but yet they got something, right? They got something. They're present when they're with you. In fact, they've got a story to tell and they want you to hear. But there's something there. There's a peace and a joy there. Those folks are rare. Paul says, I have learned to be content. Most of us on the path of more. More now. 90 days, same as cash. But what if we became the type of people where we could learn how to be grateful for what you already have? Contentment is not in our hearts, many of our hearts this morning. In fact, in the world that we live, the world that we're so easily conformed to, it's probably more like worry. I bet there's a lot of worried people in the room. No matter your economic sphere, your financial strata, no matter where you are socioeconomically, worry riddles many, many of our hearts. Money is the source of so much of it. Now, maybe today you're worried. Can I say this sermon is for you? You ever listen to a sermon, watch a guy preach, and you're thinking it's for the person next to you or somebody else? Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person to your left and say, this sermon is for me. You're off the hook. (laughs) Now turn turn to the person to your right and say, this sermon is for me, but you need it more. Now turn to somebody else and say, why does he always ask us to turn to somebody? Are you worried? Are you worried? Maybe you don't own a slice of the American dream. Maybe you don't own a house and you're worried that the housing prices are going up. Maybe you own a house and you're worried that the housing prices are not going to go up. Maybe you're worried about the economy in general. Maybe you're worried about the stock market. Maybe you're worried about something we've, maybe you've heard about recently. There's an election coming up. Voting in our gym, by the way. There's an election coming up, and maybe you're worried that the wrong candidate could get into office and it would trouble you. Or maybe you're worried that they're both the wrong candidate and we're all in trouble. Worry can fill our hearts, not contentment. And so, as we talk about some of these great truths from 1 Timothy, I want to say this as a backdrop. God intends for us to move more and more away from worry and to contentment. And, and not only that, 
but into the realm of enjoyment. We're going to look at it in a second, but in 1 Timothy it says, this isn't just a passage ripping the rich, okay? So don't, don't misunderstand the context of this. It's not just ripping the rich, but in a moment we're going to look at what the Scripture says about how God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Isn't that great? Think about that for a second. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Don't dumb that down, okay? Richly all things. Let me ask you, what do you enjoy? What spaces, places, items, objects are in your life? Maybe favorite foods. Maybe you're into dipping, salsa, chips into salsa, or pita into hummus, or bread into olive oil. And what are your favorite foods? What do you enjoy? Maybe you have a, it's a place that you can go to. Maybe there's a condo or a cabin or a camper or a tent or a park or a hiking trail or somewhere you can go. What do you enjoy? Do you know that the creator wants to whisper to you often in your life if you're attuned to him? He wants to whisper to you, enjoy this. This is from my hand. Enjoy this. What do you, what do you enjoy? Here's what I enjoy, if we can have sound and audio. I enjoy this. I enjoy getting my favorite person or favorite creature, and I just go out into the country. And that's the wind and me and my cardio. And this is a 90-pound golden retriever who loves me more than anybody. And I'll just go out in the country, and I'm not hunting, I'm not fishing, I'm just trespassing on somebody else's land. This is out in Livingston. I go out there often. Don't tell anybody, okay? We can keep it a secret, right? And I just go out there. And I know trespassing is prohibited by law and punishable by fine and or imprisonment. But I feel like God is watching over me. And I'll get away from you. I'll get away from y'all. I'll get away from our staff. I'll try to get away from problems and be fully present. But you know, one of the things that helps me get fully present is that creature and my truck and that land that I trespass on. And I feel God's pleasure when I trespass. But no, to seriously, to be out there. And I feel like it's leading me to enjoy God more. What are the things that you enjoy? I, I love books. I move in my library from the second floor here up to my third story office with our staff. And I just love books. I'm old school, right? I mean, I, just, I love actual books. And I'll read occasionally like y'all do on the digital stuff. But I just love books. I love to be surrounded by books. And when I'm, when I'm in my office in the, in the library, I just, I, it's, just a, it's a space that I enjoy. Ideas and truths and reflection and just being able to, to be a contemplative person amidst all the crowd. That's God's pleasure. It's something that I enjoy. But what about you? What do you enjoy? Before you hear any more of the message, before you come back next week and hear the third and final installment of the Enough series, I want you to hear this today very clearly. God has given you richly all things to enjoy. Are you enjoying his gifts? And let me say this. All of us to some extent are knitted to others. We have family, we have roommates, we have people. And to the extent that you're enjoying God's gifts is to the extent that people enjoy being around you. Do you know what drains you? Do you know what gives you life? Are you enjoying that? What do you enjoy? Look at this psalm, Psalm 104, verses 13 and 15. I just, I just love this. People that like books love this. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. 
I love the imagery there. It's God. It's God who causes the rain to come down from the heavens, for the grain to grow, for the cattle to graze on the hillside, for the vines to yield the, the grapes, and for the trees to produce the oil, the olives for the oil, for, for sustenance. And there's this sense of like, we're not just eating and living, right? We're enjoying. And God has given us richly all things to enjoy. And so without further ado, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll get back into it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, here we are. This is verses 17, 18, and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, here we go, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This week I was reading about the woman described in Proverbs 31. It's sort of a famous passage about this woman of great character. Uh, you don't even have to be a Bible scholar or churchgoer to know about Proverbs 31. Um, I want to say, because my wife's here at the 11 o'clock on the front row, that I married a Proverbs 31 woman. I even said that in the 930, babe, because I mean it. Here's what it says, and look at this from a financial standpoint. She provides for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Here is a woman of great character. Here is a woman who displays her character in part by the way she handles money by the way she stewards the resources. And she is able because she handles it well. Hear me, church. Hear me, people. She's able to do what is most deeply satisfying to human beings, to open her arms to the poor and to extend her hands to the needy. She is able to do so because of how she's managed things so well. Here, 1 Timothy 6 the church at Ephesus, through the new church leader, Timothy, Paul's heir apparent, his designated successor, they're given this utterance of godliness with great contentment is great gain and motivators to live in that contentment. We brought nothing into this world, we'll take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. Be careful, Rich. There are so many snares, so many traps, so many ways to be plunged and be pierced. Enjoy the gifts. Enjoy the gifts, but how do you enjoy God's gifts without those gifts becoming your God? How can, you, how can you live in such a way to make room for God in the midst of your abundance? Remember Forrest Gump? Say yes. But you remember the scene where he's getting on the bus and there's no room? There's no seat for him? They place their hands. There's no seat for him? And if money grips your heart then you're saying to God, there's no room for you. Not here. Not here. There's no room for you. And in a moment, we're going to look at two, two things that train our hearts to make room for God in our lives and to not to be arrogant and conceit because we, I think we all know, I think we all know that's the product. That can be the product of, any, of us any time that 
riches grow, that wealth increases, is that we can become haughty, we can become conceited, and we've got to make room for God. I want to remind you of just how relevant and brilliant the Bible is when it talks to you and I about managing our lives. In fact, if you're a note taker, I want you to write three words down as it comes to riches and wealth and money management. And you know them all, okay? But the first is the word budget. Go ahead and cringe. Go ahead and make a noise out loud, right? Just the word budget. Now, there are two types of people, two types of humans in terms of how we handle our money. The first type of human is a geek when it comes to money. Now, a geek loves to crunch numbers, loves a plan, loves to be in control. Those people, if you're that way, you are a geek. Other people are hippies. They don't like to crunch numbers. They don't like a plan. They understand that control is simply an illusion. They want to just be free and go with the flow. And I've taught this to you before, but what happens? Geeks and hippies get married. And every marriage is comprised of a geek and a hippie. Someone who likes a plan, someone who likes numbers, someone who likes to be in control of it, and someone that's free-flowing, right? That's, don't, don't fence me in, I'm going to float with the wind. And it's why, you're laughing, but you know, it's the number one source of conflict in marriage. In fact, for us to be a healthy church, we want to come alongside people and help you. Help ourselves learn about this area. Let me ask you, do you know your income? Do you know your expenses? And are you keeping your expenses under your income? If you do, you can be the type of person to live generously. If you don't, you will be in trouble. And woe is you in so many ways. Jesus taught this. Now, in Luke chapter 14, now he taught this passage. It was told to us. In the context of discipleship, what does it mean to follow Christ? But look at the principles financially that we can derive from this. Suppose one of you, this is a parable, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Ha, ha, ha. Any people pleasers in the room? The brilliance of Jesus teaching, he doesn't just give a principle, right? He, he, he taps into the people pleasers. Like, if you don't live this way, you're going to be laughed at. People are going to ridicule you. You're going you're gonna to fail publicly. Ha, ha, ha. Ouch, that hurts if you're like me and you're a people pleaser, right? Like, Jesus, you've got my attention there. And here he's saying what? You need to count the cost. You need to know your income. You need to know your expenses. It's wise to do so. After writing the word budget, write down another word that we hate, the word debt. And Scripture teaches us, we all know this, Scripture says this in the book of Proverbs, spoken so long ago and so true today in the world of credit cards. The borrower is servant to the lender. It seems good because somebody's giving you money now. I worked on college campuses for many, many years. In fact, when I graduated college, that's what, it, that's what I did. I did seminary intermittently, and then I worked at Florida State for four years and the University of Miami for seven and a half years, and I got to see college students up close. It was a really a glorified life. I got to hang out with college students, and I didn't have to carry a backpack or study or go to class. It's an awesome job. And 
But I saw on these college campuses, especially in August and January when new semesters would roll around, there would be people hawking their wares, their goods, inviting college students in, inviting them to, to, to show them to what they needed. And there were credit card companies telling these kids that they're qualified. And here is your, here's your, here's your limit. Mm. And credit cards, we know, are easy to obtain. They're simple to use, but they're hard to pay off. On the front end, they're seductive. On the back end, they're treacherous. The borrower is servant to the lender. Annie Lamott is one of my favorite writers. And she wrote a book called Bird by Bird. I saw one of you nod your head. You've read it too. In this book, it's inspired by her brother, who was, they were young at the time, and she tells the story of her brother who had procrastinating doing a book report on birds. He had waited to the day before. And he sits down at their kitchen table, and in the kitchen there are books and pictures of birds all around him. And her little brother, procrastinating his report, he sits there looking at the pictures and the books of birds all around him, and he's overwhelmed with the immensity of the task. And her father apparently got it right. He went to him and put his arm around his son. And he said, son, bird by bird. We'll do this. You'll do this. Bird by bird. And this morning, there's likely that many of you are here. And debt is very, very real to you. You don't need a verse that says the borrower is servant to the lender. You know it. You know that you're enslaved. You're drowning. You're bleeding. You're trapped. And I want to say to you, bird by bird, debt by debt. And I want to encourage you to do what I've done in my life when I've been in trouble in various ways. Is to go to someone who's wiser than me. Often that wiser person is a little bit older. Now that I'm getting old, that's hard to find. But find someone that's older and wiser and let them take you by the hand and let them help you. Bird by bird, debt by debt, knock this out. And it's going to come down to motivation, determination, and sticking with it. And you will not be the type of Jesus follower the type of human being that can open your hands to the needy and lend yourself to the poor if you are enslaved in debt. Bird by bird, debt by debt, seek to get out of it. Beyond budget and beyond debt, there's this word that I want you to write down called savings. It could also, according to statistics, it could elicit a lot of pain and angst in the room. Here's what Proverbs says about the wise and the foolish. There's always a contrast. Oh, let me go back here to Romans on the idea of debt. The borrow is servant to the lender, Proverbs. And in Romans, Paul said to the church in Rome, which was the financial center of the world at the time, finances, fashion, everything was happening in Rome. And those early followers of Jesus were trying to walk it out. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the world? And Paul says, owe nothing to anyone. How How many people do you think owed that he talked to, right, that were in debt? that were shopping and strolling and purchasing. And he says, owe no one anything except to love one another. Can I tell you how free that could be? For some of you, this is your testimony. Share it. Don't get arrogant, 
But share your testimony because we need stories of inspiration. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, to saving. The wise, this is in the Proverbs, the wise store up choice food and olive oil. Remember, it was an agricultural economy, so this was the stuff of the day. They store up food and olive oil, choice stuff, but fools gulp theirs down. No thought for the future. If that verse isn't clear enough, let me put it this way. The wise save and fools spend. And so if your Bible is open, I want you to look back down to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. And you'll see in this passage, you'll see that Paul gives the church a couple of practices. A couple of practices that if they'll walk them out, let's put it this way. These are two practices to train our hearts in contentment. I watched some of you run 30 and 50 miles last weekend uh, here from the church in the Urban Ultra. And you trained. These were women and men, pretty fit, who trained. Now, they took breaks and stuff, but they trained hard. If you've set your heart on accomplishing something, there's some degree of training that you put in it. I see, I see coaches in the back of our room who help our young people in, on area schools train to, to lead and to, to, to compete. Coach at Germantown over here, coach at Jackson Prep, they know the value of training. Let me ask you, do you know the value of training your hearts in contentment? Because if we're not careful, we get seduced into the buy this, try this, travel here, the next thing will bring contentment to my heart. If we're not careful, we'll begin to be haughty. We'll, we'll begin to think that we produced our riches and our wealth, that it wasn't a gift from the hand of God. And we will begin to think erroneously that all riches always exist, that we'll always have it. But these are two practices to train our hearts. You'll see in this passage, Paul, in 1 Timothy 6, he talks about this very thing about being rich what? Is your Bible open? Be rich what? Say it. Rich in good deeds. Okay? Rich in good deeds. We'll call that serving. And I ask you this morning, do you have a place where you faithfully serve? Where you serve systematically and sacrificially? A school a church, a team, a group of people, a group of kids. And if you're serving there, if you have an answer in your heart, do they know you're serving there? That'll test you to see if it's sacrificial and systematic. But do they know that you serve there? Few things make me more proud as a pastor than when I hear people talk about some of you and they talk about how you show up and you sacrifice. We ordained three elders last Sunday night right here. And one of the men, I can brag on all three of them, but one of the men, Stan Troy, I've just grown to really, really love and the sacrifices that he's made for our church. And about once a month or once every month or two, I'll hear somebody in our community say, man, Stan is there. He's there for these kids. Do you have a place where you serve? I don't know anything that could train your heart in the area of contentment like serving can. I want this to be normal. This is my prayer for our church. If you wonder about my vision or expectations, this would be my prayer for our church, that it would be very normal when you're out there in the community and you hear someone say, oh, I go to Fondren. That you can say to them, oh, yeah, where do you serve? Where do you serve? We need 97 people to pull off a Sunday morning currently. 
97, not paid people like me, but volunteers, people that will show up two, three, sometimes four times a month to serve others. And those people need breaks. We need a lot of people to serve us. And we, more importantly, want to move people into service, serving others. Van Harden, our missions pastor, um, in these months and years ahead will help us, equip us, and give us ways to step in to serve in our community. The local partners that we have, the global partners that we have, and other means as well. But we also want to encourage our church and help equip you to step into nonprofits and other organizations who are already doing great works. The church, this church doesn't have to start every new program. We can help send and equip you into places in Jackson where you can serve. Do you have a place to serve? On a very personal note, I want to talk to, to you about something that God has been working on in my own life. It's very common among good-hearted people, especially Southern people, to use a very common expression when we see somebody that needs to be served. And we'll look at that person and we'll say, I want you to complete the sentence, okay? We'll look at them and we'll say, if you need anything, call me. Or you're from Mississippi, if you need anything, holler. Don't do that anymore. Many months ago, I believe God told me that. Robert, stop doing that. Because here's what you're doing. In saying, if you need anything, holler, you're basically promising everything and doing nothing. It's like handing somebody a blank check, unsigned and undated. And here's what you're doing. You're adding to their burden. You're actually giving them a dual burden where they're going to have to later ask you for help if you're going to help them. And they're going to have to be creative and think exactly how they need your help. Right? And then when the rubber meets the asphalt, they got to be thinking, well, who are you? Where do you live? And what could you actually do? That you know, there's a lot that, there's a, that's an added burden for people. And doing something is so much better than promising everything. And maybe it can be a note on a napkin. Maybe there's somebody, and here's what I've found in 50 years of living and almost 30 years of ministry, is that people are sad, people that are sad and depressed in the middle of a mess, they're not ready to be creative. They don't really know what they need many times. And they need for you and I to be rich in good deeds and just to do something. And it could be as simple as a note on a napkin. It could be as simple as... I'm thinking about you right now. And I want you to know that you're not alone. And then you give that. You let that be expressed to them. Do you have a place where you serve? Are you looking to be rich in good deeds? You know, I think Jesus wants that. He wants that for our church. I read this week that the number one determining factor for a church if we're going to be generous is a generous pastor now that's a lot of pressure I'm glad we have a team a staff team to share a ministerial staff team to share some of that load but we ourselves have to be generous we've got to see the gracious hand of God in our own lives as he provides for us and provides for this church and lead and share that and share stories of inspiration as you live and learn to live and to be rich in good deeds secondly there's sharing Paul talks about this, I believe, also in verse 18, to be generous, to actually share your stuff, to learn to be a giver. For most of us, we live this way. 
we spend, right? Because we're not satisfied with our income. I mean, it's not enough. I mean, Robert, why are you preaching this sermon series called Enough? It's just not enough. And whatever I have, I spend. I just spend it. When you're talking about giving, always do sermon illustrations on cheap props. <laughs> you young pastors, watch and learn. But your approach to your finances, the majority of churchgoers, is spend. Just spend. And what happens? When you spend, if you just spend and you don't have no plan, you're not principled at all, you're not a geek and you don't live with a geek and you haven't asked advice from a geek, you just spend and what happens? It's gone. It's all gone. And when we got married all those years ago, we decided to flip the script and live differently. And you know, you can take it or leave it, but the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that we give. And you don't give God leftovers. You give choice off the top. And we have found, and is it, is it hard sometimes? Yes. Does it hurt? You bet. But we have found, as God has led us and blessed us, that this is the way to live. And you can take... 100% with the world versus 90% with God. And I would much rather go 90% with God. And what we've done is we give 10%. And we try to save 10%. Now, we got three kids who require a lot. But this is when it becomes a struggle, but not here. Not here because we give off the top. And we want to lead a church where we can be conduits and vessels. Not sporadically giving, not giving from time to time, but to give right off the top. To say, God, first to you, and then we'll trust you. Now, how much have we saved? I'm not going to tell you. I've shared with the church before that I want to live long enough to be a burden to my children. <laughs> eh? Got to send in the check to the nursing home here. $3,200 a month. Got to make it. Where's the check? But a wise person saves and a fool just gulps theirs down. Some call this the 10-10-80 principle where when you give 10 to God off the top, you know you're not robbing him. And when you save 10, you're not mortgaging your future. And you might even have something for the little ones. And then we spend. And it is easier. This is the majority way to do it. And some people think when a preacher flips the script, <clears throat> it's all about what we can get from you. But deeper than that, it's what we want for you. And that's a life of generosity. Just so you can relax, and I hope this gets past your defenses. Paul says there's a way to give. Now some of you are here today and you think, man, tithe, got it. I do the tithe thing, preacher. I wasted my Sunday. And one friend of mine says, tithing is the training wheels, but generosity is the tour de France. Don't stop there. God wants everyone to be on an adventure of generosity. Amen? And that's the, that's the adventure that we're on. When we felt God calling us to start Fondren Church um, those years ago, we had real fears. Why leave a cozy cushy, comfy job and step out when it could fail. And there are mouths to feed. And we've been on a journey of seeing God provide for our church. And man, has he. 
Like we don't, I don't preach today seeking to manipulate anybody. This is what I want for you and what I want for our church. But if you're there, understand that's training wheels. But God wants to call you tithers on an even greater adventure. And oh, the redemptive potential of the church. If we would hand over everything we own to God. And not Forrest Gump him and tell him no more room for you, God. But to say, God, you have all of this. And I want to live principally. But for most of you, there's no plan to give. And you're living just like the world. And so I want to challenge you. And Paul said it this way. This is the Tour de France. The Tour de France is this. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, don't let somebody manipulate you. Don't let a church try to do it. Don't let a wealthy, greedy preacher do it. Don't give under compulsion or unwillingly, but do so generously. Give cheerfully. Here's the Greek word for that. It is hilarious. You know where we're going with that? You don't have to go to seminary to know this. It's the word hilarious. In other words, let your giving be an exercise in joy. The happiest people on earth are those who are givers. And Jesus is right. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I learned this week that the average flower shop, guys, I'm going to lose points with you. But I learned this week that the average flower shop throws away 50 flowers a day. Now, based on some quick cursory research that I did, there's about 25 flower shops or places that, major places that sell flowers in the Tri-County area. So if you do the math, you'll realize that's 1,250 flowers that are thrown away every day. Have you noticed that a drugstore is popping up on every single corner? And one of the reasons is it's just a testimony. It's a monument to the fact that we need help. We need pills and stuff to help us sleep, alleviate stress, and deal with anxiety. But what if we gave away as many flowers as pills? What if instead of someone sitting at home and feeling horrible about themselves and life, they could go to the dining room table and see, to see a card and kind words and a vase with flowers saying, I'm thinking of you. What level of generosity? In what ways can God stir this up in your heart? I'm saying to you, just as coaches know about their athletes and athletes know about it and runners and distance people and people that work hard on a specific skill, you must train. And Paul tells Timothy to the early church and to us today, in the midst of so much materialism and advertisements in our day, train your heart. And here's how you train your heart to always make room for God. Serving and sharing. Sharing and serving. Being rich in good deeds and sharing what you own. And to do so principally. To not give God the leftovers, but to give off the top. And to look for ways that we collectively can open our hands and extend ourselves to the poor and to the needy. Would you pray with me?